You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. If you look at content from the yoga tradition over the many thousands of years it's been around, you would notice that on balance, yoga practitioners have been much more interested in the inner experience of existence than the outer form. Yet, if you look at what's been created about yoga in just the past few decades, you would get a very different impression. My guest on today's episode was inspired by a sudden and profound experience of wholeness to eventually transition from being a Hollywood producer to a teacher, writer, and guide who focuses essentially on the inner experience of yoga. These days, Tracy Stanley shares teachings that are inspired by over 20 years of study in the traditions of the Himalayan masters and Sri Vijaya Tantra. The focus of her teaching honors life as a ritual, and she's devoted to yoga nidra, meditation, self-inquiry, nature as a teacher, and ancestor reverence. She's the creatrix of the Empowered Life Self-Inquiry Oracle Deck and host of the Radiant Rest podcast, which celebrates the practices, teachers, and traditions that prioritize the rituals of rest, sacred dreaming, and self-care. Let's jump right into this conversation where Tracy shares about her early years as a yoga practitioner and Hollywood producer, thoughts on social media and how it's transformed our culture, and Tracy's creative process. After the interview, I'll pop back in to share some reflections and some invitations for your teaching and your practice. Welcome to the podcast, Tracy. So happy to be here. I would love to start with a little bit of your background and hear about how you first found yoga, started practicing, and then why you started to teach. Mm, That's a very long story. (laughs) But what I can tell you is that in a moment of just waiting for the sun to rise one day when I was living in South Africa, having no interest really in yoga or meditation, I had a spontaneous moment of meditation. And it was so profound that it led me to ask the question, what just happened? I need to know what happened. And I kept asking and asking, and people were looking at me like I had 12 heads until finally I found somebody who said, oh, I know exactly what happened to you. And they brought me to a spiritual bookstore. They handed me about six or seven books, which I read within a couple of weeks. And that started to shift my perspective of reality, um, of what I knew anyway as reality, which was just kind of like the gross material world. And then I found myself coming back to LA and looking for a yoga studio um, because that's where you did meditation. I also found myself at a Zen meditation center and that didn't quite vibe with me. Um, and so I was pointed to the beginner yoga class in that studio. And it turned out that it was a Kundalini yoga class. And I went into that class and that first class when the teacher 
was playing the gong at the end, I felt like someone had kind of opened up my heart center and was pouring molten gold into my chest. And it was a very profound, very visceral experience. And I remember kind of coming back from that experience and the woman who was sitting in front of me who knew that it was my first time in class, she turned around and she said, oh, so did you feel it? I still don't know what she was talking about, but in that moment, I thought she meant this feeling of this molten gold being poured in me. And I thought, oh, this teacher is doing something. He's creating some kind of an alchemy to make this happen somehow, right? My understanding of what was happening obviously has shifted over the years. That was 20 something years ago. But that experience kept me coming back to yoga. You know, so I started practicing five days a week. And then one day that teacher was sick and I went right instead of left in the hallway. And that's when I discovered Hatha yoga. And I was like, well, wait a second. This isn't the yoga I've been practicing. What is this? This is something completely different. So I started to do both. And then eventually I got to the point where I wanted to go on a yoga retreat and I decided that I should read something about yoga um, because I think my expectation of a yoga retreat was that we were going to be meditating and chanting all day long and not it, what it turned out to be was more like a yoga vacation. Um, but my, I thought that I was going to be learning about yoga on this retreat. And so I went to the bookstore and I somehow wound up picking up a translation of the yoga sutras. And while I was on the retreat, I read that translation, not understanding a lot of what I was reading, because this was the first time that I was introduced to any kind of Sanskrit, any kind of um, real yogic philosophy. And I got to Sutra 136, which is Vishoka Vajotishmati, that talks about this place within us that is an eternal effulgent light that is beyond all sorrow beyond all condi conditioning, beyond all of our experiences, and that is pristine. And that this was one of the things that we kind of receive maybe a taste of this in our yoga practice. And so I started to understand that maybe some of the yoga that I was practicing was not going to necessarily lead me to the promise of this yoga sutra because I had never heard this before. And at that point I had been practicing yoga for over five years. So I started to ask around about teachers and types of yoga and started to do more reading. Um, and eventually I started to find teachers who were teaching Tantra and teaching yoga philosophy. And as I started to delve into those deeper practices, what I saw in myself was a real transformation that was pretty accelerated. Um, and so what I decided was, because at the time I was a film producer and I happened to have a space in the, the building that I was living and that I was renting out to casting directors. And so I said, well, I wonder what would happen if one day I decide to make this like a yoga space and a space that was run on donation so that it was accessible to everybody. 
Um, because what I did notice is that in some of the classes and certainly the retreats that I was going on, I was often the only person of color. Um, the classes were expensive, so I wanted to make it accessible. Had no intention on teaching at all, just creating a space. So that space was opened a um, couple of months after 9-11. And it gave me the opportunity to see how important it really is to have community and to have Sangha and to have a foundation of a place to practice where things can also be processed, you know, like, you know, real practice kind of beyond, uh, let's say the yoga beyond the poses kind of yoga. And so it just happened that a couple of times there were teachers that were sick, couldn't come in. And I would at the last minute on a weekend would cover for them. And I started to realize two things. One was, wow, this was way more fulfilling than making, you know, another action movie. And at the same time, I felt like I needed to learn how to teach, right? Because I felt like, oh, I have no business really standing up at the front of the room teaching anybody because I'm just a practitioner. Um, and so I started to seek out some teacher trainings. And once I did that, um, I decided, oh, you know what, I'll, I'll teach a class in the morning before I go to work. So I had this like 6 a.m. class that I was teaching. And it was basically most of the people who had these kind of jobs where they were working 12 hour days or 14 hour days, because I was living in Los Angeles. So there were a lot of people in the entertainment industry. And that group of people just kind of coalesced where we just had this little sangha every morning. It wasn't every morning, it was three times a week that was coming together. And I started to see that not only could these practices transform me, but with consistency, they could help other people to feel better. And so I did both things for a long time. I taught yoga, I made movies, and then eventually um, I transitioned myself out of the Hollywood machine of making films and really dedicated myself to um, teaching full time. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> it's a great story though. There's so much in there and I have a, a whole bunch of follow-up questions. The first one is, can you give us a brief overview of the word Tantra? Because there's still so much misunderstanding around that word, even among teachers. Mm. So tan means to stretch or to expand or to even accelerate or to weave. And tra means to protect. And so you'll, you'll notice that there's not anything about sex in that title, right? In that description. There, the, the teachings of Tantra are about doing teachings and practices that help to accelerate your expansion, your evolution. And there are two paths of Tantra. There is a, what's called a left-handed path 
and a right-handed path. And my understanding is that the left-handed path is a path that is an advanced path. That means that you have already mastered the right-handed path, which is the path that most householders like myself are practicing. Um, I'm not going to a cemetery to sit on a dead body and meditate, which is something that someone in the left-handed path might do, right? I'm not using um, substances or eating meat even as part of, or drinking liquor as part of a practice that could be a left-handed tantric practice. I don't really know of any left-handed tantra teachers in America. Um, what I do know is that the name tantra gets distorted to mean many different things for people's purposes of wanting to sell their classes. What were those early classes like when you first started teaching and how has that evolved into what you do now? That's a good question. So, you know, what I would say is that how I was originally introduced to yoga was as a physical practice. When I started to learn more about yoga and study more about yoga, I was introduced to the yoga sutras and how to practice those yoga sutras in my practice, as opposed to just reading it in a book, right? To be able to take that and weave it into my practice and then eventually into my daily life. I was introduced to pranayama. I was introduced to meditation. I was introduced to deep relaxation. These were all things that um, were not being taught in other classes. You know, um, back then I was doing a lot of power yoga um, in addition to kundalini yoga. Um, and in the power yoga classes, we weren't really doing any kind of pranayama. There wasn't really not any guided meditation techniques, right? There, there was a five minute Shavasana while the people on the other side of the wall were clamoring to get into the class because it was almost ending, right? There was no time for self-inquiry or um, being able to process whatever had come up from practice. And so for me, how I think my practice has shifted and how my teaching has shifted since then is that I started to notice what I needed in my own practice, in my own study. And I also started to question some of the things that were missing from what I was learning that I would have to go and do my own research about. And so those things are things that are infused into my practice. So the acknowledgement of the divine feminine, the acknowledgement of nature as a teacher, the value of self-inquiry and self-study, the value of Sangha, and the, also the value of going back to the very beginning and really weaving the eight limbs through the yoga practice, whether it's teaching or whether it's studying them, 
right? And then at the same time, looking at life as a practice and teaching about life as a yoga practice, as opposed to just this compartmentalized thing that we do on our yoga mat for however long. And then we shame ourselves if we don't do it, right? And so instead of compartmentalizing it, figuring out a way to weave it through our life so that our life becomes the yoga and we become yoga. That's it. So those early morning classes, three mornings a week, were they primarily asana? Was there meditation? Did you have time for processing then? Because, you know, if you're teaching these high powered people in the film industry at 6am, I'm just trying to picture like how much spaciousness was there in those classes? Yeah. So 20 years ago, when I was teaching those classes, we would start with some kind of meditation because that's how, what I was taught meditation and pranayama. Um, there was also chanting. So we were at the very least chanting Aum. Um, and then we would move into a very vigorous asana class, very dynamic, but breath centric. So it was, it was very different than I think a lot of the classes that may have been taught at that time. Um, and that breath centric asana was inspired by Vini yoga. And there was also, um, this idea of the actual asana becoming pranayam because it was breath centric. And we would also use mantra while we were moving in our asanas, right. As a way to expand our prana, another technique of vinyoga. yoga. Um, so there, all of these things were being infused into those classes Um, I was also taught very early on that you don't just kind of leave people in Shavasana unguided um, and that, you know, Shavasana needs to be at least 15 minutes. So my Shavasanas were longer probably than some classes might've been taught at that time. Um, And I was really doing probably more of like a body scan type situation, you know, Um, having people count backwards, you know, little elements of deep relaxation techniques or yoga nidra. Um, There was definitely not any time for processing other than, you know, after class, there wasn't a class like right after my class, but I wasn't directing people to do any kind of like self-inquiry or processing or sharing um, back then. And now there's a few elements including that processing that you mentioned as being missing from a lot of the classes that you took and taught back then, including Sangha, self-study, acknowledgement of the divine feminine. Can you give us some examples of how you would include those elements now into a class? Yeah. So, you know, a simple way would be that when we are practicing yoga nidra, we do an invocation to the goddess. Uh, You know, I may tell a story about yoga nidra that comes from the Devi Mahatma. Um, I may talk about the sage Mataji, who was the one who taught 
Yoga Nidra to some of the teachers that are in the lineage that I'm sharing the foundations of my practices from. So those are ways in which we get to, first of all, learn about the history um, of these practices and at the same time acknowledge that there are also teachers, um, female teachers that held these practices whose names we may never know because somehow they've kind of been erased from some of the, the books. Your teaching in the beginning you described as having this very vigorous component and it does, my understanding is that you've now shifted into almost the polar opposite of an incredibly restful, still practice, practice of stillness. And I wonder what drew you to the quiet practice and what do you think are some of the underappreciated opportunities within that? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is my first experience of uh, a quiet practice like deep relaxation or yoga nidra was pretty profound um, and actually brought me right back to that moment when I was watching the sunset, the sunrise, right? Of, of wait, something's, something happened here. What happened? What's going on? Um, and the more and more that I practiced that and the more I got comfortable sharing it, um, what I noticed is that people felt and also looked so refreshed and so deeply rested after such a short period of time that it felt like, well, this is the antidote. This is the antidote for what we're all feeling. This is the antidote for working a 12 hour or 14 hour or 16 hour day. Um, and I started to use it as a tool just in my own life, um, being on set, you know, for 16 hours, working a night shoot where you might get to the set at 6 p.m. and work and then leave the set at 6 a.m. kind of vibe. Um, that those practices of yoga nidra and deep relaxation were the things that allowed me to stay rested. They were also the uh, practices, including meditation, that allowed me to stay clear. Um, and so I would often um, receive feedback from people saying, oh, and how is it, what are you doing to stay so calm? And what are you doing to stay so clear? And, you know, there was always this kind of um, energy of panic or crisis happening literally every day and in the office. Um, and that also allowed me the having um, kind of contact with the opposite energy of stillness allowed me to be able to realize at some point, like, oh, there's part of me that's actually addicted to this crisis energy, right? That there's something here that is like, oh, we were, you know, and then of course, because I was doing inquiry, it's like, well, at what level am I like co-creating the crisis just so that I can like, you know, fix the crisis or do whatever. And so these practices, um, I think first became really obvious to me in my own life, how powerful they were. Um, and then obviously sharing them and getting feedback from people and people wanting to know more about it or wanting to get recordings. That was a clue that this is something that is an antidote that 
to our modern day world. And if we think about, you know, 20 years ago, this is before we had all the social media that we have now that is literally keeping us like zombies. Tell me your understanding of the difference physiologically from sleeping versus these restful practices. So when we're sleeping, there's not, we're not intentionally or consciously sleeping. We're closing our eyes and most of the time we're blacking out. If we're lucky, maybe we have a dream that we might or might not remember. When we're practicing yoga nidra, we are intentionally remaining in contact with consciousness. And we're asking that consciousness to remain awake and aware while we move through all of the states of consciousness. So we're in the waking state, obviously, when we first go to sleep. And at some point we're transitioning into the dream state. And then some point we're transitioning into a deep sleep state. And maybe we move into another state. But consciousness weaves through all of those states. It also weaves through all of the stages of sleep, right? So if we get to kind of become aware of, oh, my breath is actually changing right now. And now I feel like I'm in this liminal space where I'm not asleep and I'm not awake or I'm not sure, am I awake or am I asleep? But my consciousness is awake. That liminal space, that transition is usually when we just, we, we don't even pay attention to it, right? Because there's no consciousness weaving through it. And I think that once we start to really practice yoga nidra, we also realize that there's a part of us that's always at rest. And that part of us that is always at rest is eternal. And that's also part of what is weaving through all of the states of consciousness. So it's much different than the kind of sleep that happens without consciousness. And do you find that with practice, we can more easily access the part of us that is always at rest, even when we're in motion and there's movement all around us? Well, what I can say is that this place, which we would call the fourth state, which is said to be similar to peace beyond words, it's a form of samadhi. My understanding is, is that it descends from grace. It is not something that we can make happen. But we also know that our practices are cumulative. And so the answer would be yes, the more we practice, the more we are able to receive. And certainly the more we are able to self-regulate our own nervous system so that when things are moving in that crisis mode, that you can actually find that internal peace, you can actually regulate yourself to more of a rest and digest mode so that your everything internally is slowing down, is calming down, even though everything around you might be spinning. So it's more of an ability to receive than an ability to create. Well, you are, you know, one of the yoga sutras talks about this idea of samadhi 
being the ability to, and I'm paraphrasing, being the ability to receive the support of sleep and dreams. Mm. Do you have a favorite or a few recommended translations and interpretations of the Yoga Sutras? Because they're so, <laughs> there's such a variety out there and you can have such different experiences depending on the version you pick up. So what are your go-tos? You know, I, I would recommend Nishala Joy Davies' Secret Power of Yoga. That would be the one that I would recommend. That's a very interpretive one. They all are. They are. But she doesn't go through all of them. She goes through the ones we need to, to start us on our journey. You know, it's so interesting how we think about how authoritative some of these other translations written by men are, right? Well, I mean, some of them even translate the first sutra as here lies the authoritative <laughs> exactly. So, so there you, so there you go. The the other person that I would recommend studying with is Gary Crafso. Um, he has, and I'm sure it's on his website somewhere, but he actually has a uh, Yoga Sutras course or CD, or probably streaming by now, where you actually go through and you chant along with him the actual sutras so that you are embodying and feeling the vibration of the Sanskrit. Um, and he has a beautiful way of teaching these sutras. So those would be the two that I would recommend right now. Great. Thank you. Yeah. A bit ago, you mentioned social media and how that has really changed our culture. <laughs> and I wonder if you would go into a little bit more detail about what you think the effects of social media are on the human psyche and potentially how we can use our yoga practice to maybe work with or mitigate some of those effects. Mm. Well, I'll start with the first question. I mean, um, I'm currently right now over a month into a social media sabbatical, right? And so what I notice about social media, no matter how you're using it, um, because I do think there are positive aspects of social media, we might not be sitting here talking right now if it weren't for social media, right? So we get to meet like-minded people, we get to be inspired, we get to share, but there's also a level of where is your creative Shakti going? right? Where is your dharma? How is your dharma being used or how is your dharma being forgotten? And I feel like society wants us to bring our awareness constantly to the external, constantly to what is outside of us, knowing that the answers and what we seek is usually on the inside. It's in the inner world. It's not in the outer world. But the more we stay in the outer world, the more we're going to buy, the more we're going to stay on social media, the more we're going to be distracted, the more we're going to be binge watching, and the less we're actually going to be practicing, the less we're actually going to be doing the work that needs to be done in the world. 
And so when you think about reading how um, these apps were actually designed to be addictive, and then you think of yourself as someone who has a practice and you have to really question, I think, is there, am I addicted to this? What, and if I feel addicted or if I feel any kind of a pull when someone says, hey, let's go on a social media fast for a few days, if you feel a pull or a resistance, this is where the practice of self-inquiry comes in, is that what is, what is it that is the resistance? Most of the time, it's going to be that we feel like we're losing something, that we're missing something. And what is it that you feel like you're losing? Or what is it that you feel like you're missing? And so, you know, this, um, the idea and the desire to belong is very powerful, right? And so if there's something in you that is saying, oh, well, if I'm not on social media, I won't belong, or if I'm not on social media, I'm going to miss out on something. This is exactly the kind of psychology that was used to create these addictions to social media. And so the question that I would ask myself is, what is it that I really want to belong to? And why don't I just create that? Why don't I seek that out in a different way? Why don't I also look at maybe some of where I might be wounded around belonging? and seek out the proper help or the proper practices to be able to heal that within myself. Because my understanding of the teachings of Tantra are that the teacher is only there to lead you back to the practices that have helped them find their inner teacher. They're not there to make you dependent on them. They're there so that they're just shining a light saying, hey, this is the direction I went to find something. Maybe you should try that direction, right? And I think that this is something that gets lost in modern yoga is that we become really dependent on the outer teacher. And the more shiny or celebrity or Instagram cute the teacher is, the more we are attracted to that sometimes. And yet a lot of times the mirror is not being reflected back to you to show you how shiny and how cute and how worthy you are. And I think that's a problem. So taking time to reclaim your power looking at all the ways in which you give your power away. Are you giving your power away to the corporation known as Instagram or Facebook and take the power back? Because we, we our Shakti is like one of the most valuable things that we have. It's, it is literally what we are building when we practice yoga. So I want to hear more about your social media fast because everyone listening to this podcast pretty much is a teacher. And what I hear from teachers more than a fear of not belonging or a fear of missing, well, it is a fear of missing out, but it's, they feel dependent on social media for their business. So is your, are your accounts like completely dormant? 
<laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> I, and, and, you know, I can say, I don't care. Yeah. Right. So the other thing, as I said, this idea of belonging, um, of we need, you know, our Instagram or whatever for our business, that is very practical. What would happen if tomorrow Instagram suddenly disappeared because someone hacked it and it was gone? What would happen to your business? Here's the thing. Use your imagination. If that were to happen, how, what would you do? How would you shift your business? Because we, we know that we have this creative capacity to shift. We did it in the pandemic. When, the, when everyone was out teaching classes at studios and the pandemic happened and all of a sudden it was like, holy moly, we, we can't teach any classes. People adjusted, people got creative, people started innovating. People started making some more money than they did when they were teaching in a studio, right? So we know that we can do this. So now just use your imagination and say, what would I do? What would I need to sustain my business if all of a sudden I didn't have social media to depend on? And then begin to create that now. Begin to create that now. Begin to migrate people and ask, who's really interested in studying with me? Or who's really interested in knowing more about what I'm doing? And let's join my mailing list. Figure out what those things are for you. Put them in place now so that you don't have to worry about, I'm going to take a month off of social media or I'm going to take a week off and I won't be able to do X, Y, and Z. I feel like if we do that, we become more empowered. We become more empowered because otherwise, what you're really saying is that social media owns your business. I agree. And that's, the same advice that I give people that I work with because I don't trust the social media platforms. They are constantly changing and they have one thing in mind and that is to hook people and to make money basically. So even though, like you said, there are some great connections you can make on it. And I don't at this point of my life choose to be completely off of them. I also, think it's a really unwise idea to make them, to make your business dependent on them. It, it is, listen, we don't own Instagram. We don't own Instagram. Anything could happen. So don't make your business dependent on Instagram and social media. Make your, your business dependent on you, on you being an amazing teacher, on you being able to connect and get your message out to people in a way that's authentic, right? And just imagine, like I said, Instagram is gone. What's your business plan? We already know that we have the power to do this and that we can be creative because we have been doing it for the last 18 months. And I love this idea. And I'm going to put through this out as a challenge to, to any listener who feels like Tracy said, either pulled or <laughs> repelled to take a break and use that break, use that extra time to do that creative work of figuring out what else could I do? How else could I build my business? Then 
at the end of that break, if you choose to come back, you will come back with this backup plan or this these other ways of reaching people and connecting with people. So that's I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, and I, I think it's great. I mean, for me, what I can say personally is the space that I have reclaimed, which I know I needed to reclaim in order to do what came forward is my book proposal is done, right? And some other creative project for an Oracle deck downloaded into my consciousness that may not have had the space to download if I was trying to figure out what am I going to post every day. So sure, we give a lot of our creative energy to these platforms. And some of our creativity is another way for us to support ourselves, right? So just think about and notice what kind of creativity comes through when you're not focused on writing something for a particular reason. Yeah. And I loved how you brought up your writing and your books as one of your methods for reaching people and sharing your message that is maybe a little bit more in depth than a social media post. And I'd really love to hear, you already talked about taking a social media fast. That's a container that supports your creative process. What else do you do? How else does your writing come from you? Mm. My writing comes from the transitional space, the liminal space of yoga nidra. And so practicing yoga nidra, you know, I would tell you that, um, you know, when I was writing Radiant Rest, my writing room, at first I was like, okay, I'm going to put a desk down here. One of my stepsons was in college, so I commandeered his room. I'm going to put a desk down here and this is where I'm going to write. And then I was like, well, no, there's needs to be more because writing, first of all, is not a linear process and it's not a masculine process. And I'm writing about something that requires my spine to be parallel to the earth as opposed to perpendicular to the earth. So my yoga nidra nest needs to come down here. And my harmonium needs to come down here and my hang drum needs to come down here and all of my pens and journals need to come down here. And so for me, it was almost like, uh, you know, how people do circuit training. It was like, okay, I feel, I know that I have a cycle of creativity that is related to the sun coming up and then the sun getting high in the sky. And that's my window of time that I can, I feel like I can download information. Um, and when that's done, I feel like, oh, it's time for me to practice Nidra. So I can come back into that internal kind of moon rising and then sun rising and be able to access that liminal space again so I can create and then if I need to have a cleanser, I can chant for 15 minutes and then just free write and see what comes forward. And so it's really not for me a linear process. It's a process of using all of these various tools and practices that I've done over the years to amplify my creativity. So do you go through multiple cycles like this in one day or is it practice, write, practice, 
one time or does it shift? It, it shifts. It really depends. It's about listening, right? So I know that when I first open my eyes, I have a good few hours that I can write pretty fluidly. Not that all of it's going to be good, but I can write pretty fluidly. And then there's a point in the day where I'll go out into nature. I walk barefoot on the earth or I'll go get into a body of water and then I'll practice yoga nidra from that vibration, right? And go into, and go into that and then go into my journaling. Um, and I also know that when the sun is highest in the sky, for me, I feel most awake. So that's a time that is perfect for me to do research. So if I have any research that I have to do for whatever I'm writing, I do it at that point. When three o'clock starts to come around, depending on what time of year it is, I know that my mind starts to say, okay, I'm done with, I'm done. So my writing time is really from whatever time I wake up, usually 4.30 in the morning to about three. And in between that, I could be chanting, I could be doing a yoga nidra, I could be doing a body scan, I could be playing the hang drum, anything could be happening, but I'm listening to what I feel is needed, what vibration is needed to bring forth creativity. That's so cool. It sounds like it's quite diametrically opposed to the life of a Hollywood producer. Like you've really shifted your life dramatically. Thankfully, I was practicing yoga when I was producing. Otherwise, I know, who knows what could have happened. Um, but what I will say is I learned because I was practicing yoga and in Hollywood that I learned about boundaries, right? I learned at some point I was like, okay, my phone is getting turned off at seven o'clock. I'm not going to be somebody who sleeps with my phone or gets phone calls from actors at four in the morning. No, that's not going to happen. And so that gave me um, this more spaciousness, more spaciousness for sure. Um, but at the same time, different because in the mornings I would do my practice Right. And then I would have sometimes a breakfast meeting and then I might even have meetings all day. I'd have could have a lunch meeting, could have a dinner meeting, you know, the, that kind of a schedule um, before I was working for myself as a producer. When I was working in-house as a producer is something that is expected. Right. It's like, well, oh, how many how many calls are on your on your call sheet? How many people do you have to call back? And the more people on your call sheet that you had to roll calls with, the more important you were. Right. The more dinners or meetings you had that day, the more important, you know, so the owners of the company would love to see a stream of people sitting in the lobby waiting to come into your office because that meant that you were being productive. But on the other side, it's like. I'm actually not being productive because half of these meetings are a waste of time. <laughs> so it sounds a bit parallel to social media and like the likes and the comments. And, you know. 100%. So it's, so it's definitely um, a different life and it's not to say that you can't have both, right? Because once you establish yourself in um, this place of knowing where your creativity comes from, how to amplify your creativity, the kind of space and boundaries that you need for your, let's just say creativity and for your life. Um, I believe that you can, those two things are not mutually exclusive. If I was planning on producing a movie tomorrow, 
I could take everything that I have cultivated in my life right now and bring that, which is part of what I did when I was still producing, bring that into the office and bring that into the culture of where it is. You know, so my teams would do yoga in the afternoons. They would get recordings of yoga nidras. Half of them started coming to yoga trainings. So being able to just kind of uh, infuse what's important to you into your work, because I know there's a lot of yoga teachers who also have other jobs who are also moms or dads, and we can infuse these practices into our family life and into our jobs. You mentioned trainings several times, and this is before we wrap up, this is one question I really love to get different perspectives on. If you could wave a magic wand and influence yoga teacher trainings around the world, what would your priority be? Well, you know, the biggest thing that I see um, when I do polls and when I do interviews um, for people who are applying to my trainings is such a diverse kind of syllabus that happens in these 200-hour teacher trainings. I'm not sure how we can have a deep understanding of yoga if we aren't learning about the koshas, the gunas, the pranavayus, if we're not learning. So there's, I feel like there's a, um, a little bit that we have to, and also if we're not learning about the yoga sutras, if we're, if we're just covering the eight limbs in just a day, I think there should be a little bit more about how to infuse that into life. Um, I also would love to see less reliance on the outer teacher and more tools that help you to guide and so that you know yourself and that you get to understand who you are, how you think, what are the things that have shaped you, how these samskaras and vasanas shaped you and how, what tools can you use to shift things that are not helpful, you know, to shift the negative vasanas. So that's a big question. Um, and I also think that the separation of Ayurveda and uh, yoga is something that should be talked about in trainings. And it's hard to do that in 200 hours, right? So maybe our trainings need to be a little bit more like year-long trainings where we get to, you know, the trainings that I do are multi-multi-month trainings where we do a sadhana in between each session and we have check-in sessions in the middle so that we can talk to people about their practices. Um, and I think that that goes to the support sangha piece that I talked about in the very beginning, the doing a sadhana in between for 30 days is talks, speaks to just the swadhyaya, the self-study, right? And the ability to do a practice over time that's supported by your teachers or your community that is going to guide you to being empowered, right? And not reliant on um, an outer teacher because your teachers will disappoint you. You can count on that. It's a big ask in a culture that is, as you mentioned in the very beginning of this conversation, so outwardly focused but it's a beautiful, beautiful intention and an important place to focus. 
think it's a really wonderful guidance for anyone who is teaching teacher trainings or considering creating a teacher training. How can you support your students to learn to trust and rely on the inner teacher over the outer teacher? And I think that's a perfect place to end. So if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go? Thank you for asking. So my book, Radiant Rest, which is a book about yoga nidra and deep relaxation, can be found. Um, you can find more information about it at radiantrest.com. And you can also check out empoweredlifecircle.com. Those are the two places I would look and, you know, uh, hope to connect at some point with people. Thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to go wherever the conversation flowed and for sharing your story and your wisdom. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. So what did you think about Tracy's social media break? I personally loved it. And when I think about taking a social media break myself, I feel like these conflicting forces of nervousness, and then also this sense of relief. Tons of stories pop into my head about why it wouldn't be a good idea. And deep down, I know that it's a matter of making a decision and then asking for support. It's kind of compelling, I've noticed, to focus on what we don't have control over, where we're stuck. And not everybody has the ability to set up their days like how Tracy described her days are, where she can organize everything around supporting her creative process. And at the same time, just because we can't do something all the way doesn't mean it's not worth making some small shifts in that direction. For example, I'm a parent, I have a young child, so there's a lot of my days that that becomes the priority. So I don't have the same ability to set up my entire life around creativity But I know that I have more than other people, for example, who are working a 40 or 50 hour a week job. One of the really interesting things that's been studied a lot in this new era of positive psychology and where we've been doing a lot more studying on human thriving versus human dysfunction is how important a internal locus of control is for a sense of well-being. This means that we have a sense of being in control or having a good portion of control over our own destiny. The more we focus on ways we're prevented from creating the lives that we want, that's actually gonna strengthen the sense of being controlled from the outside and it's gonna reduce both a sense of well-being and also it'll reduce our creativity. So while there are almost certainly external constraints, you're in a better position to navigate them when you spend more time focused on the things you do have control over. So I'd love to invite you to join me for a social media break for the month of December. We can stay in touch in other ways, such as my email list and of course this podcast. If you're a member of the Impact Club, I'll also see you and report how it's going during our live calls. And if you're in for this experiment, going totally dark on social media for the month of December, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at mado at teachingyoga.net. Whatever form your self-care takes this week, this is your friendly reminder to make it a priority in whatever way is possible for you. This is not something to compare yourself to others to succeed at or to fail at. It's literally the sustenance for your soul. So it could be gardening, painting, walking, dancing, 
whatever brings you joy and pulls you into the moment. So many forces in our culture try to pull us away from the here and now and into a state of craving or numbing. And in my experience, teaching yoga has the potential to be a voice for remembering to balance out the comforts and the distractions of the modern world with the joy and discomfort, sometimes discomfort, ultimately joy of being here now. So as always, Thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to be that voice.